This is Reimagining Higher Education, your go-to podcast with remarkable education leaders sharing personal stories from their experience in and around the sector, including reflection and evidence for progress in the sector. With your host, Professor Judith Sachs, former PVC Learning and Teaching at the University of Sydney, Deputy Vice-Chancellor and Provost at Macquarie University, and Special Advisor in Higher Education at KPMG, and now Chief Academic Officer at Studiosity. Welcome. It gives me great pleasure to um, introduce you to uh, David Lloyd, Vice-Chancellor of the University of South Australia, um, who, who has been... How long have you been at the University of South Australia now? Eight years? And so, right, and so long-standing visionary uh, Vice-Chancellor who certainly did reimagine higher education, reimagined University of South Australia. So I'm looking forward to hearing your story of that reimagination and your ideas about the future reimagining of, of, uh, of, of uh, higher education in Australia. But before we start... Um, I would like to acknowledge that um, I uh, am on um, Indigenous land of the um, Gadigal people of the Aora Nation in, in Sydney, and I wish to pay my respects uh, to Elders past and present. And I also wish to acknowledge that Studiosity uh, recognises the traditional owners um, and custodians throughout Australia and the lands where we work and recognises their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. And we pay our respects to elders past and present. So, David, what what is your object? Well, thanks, you. Um, I'm on current country today. Um, what I brought the fireside cartoon. Uh huh. Yes. You you might have to read it to us. It's a um, it's a very famous fireside cartoon of two chimps sitting uh, on the bow of a tree, and uh, one chimp is grooming up the village and says, well, well, another blonde hair. I'm doing a little more research about Jane Goodall Tramp. And I had it signed by Jane Goodall. And it says, for David, what is this life without a sense of humour? <laughs> this, for me, represents my, my education journey. Um, I think what we do is very serious, but I don't think we should take ourselves very seriously. And it was my pleasure to meet Jane uh, in 2014 when we ordered, we gave her an honorary doctor, and uh, I talked about the impact of that on fundraising for her. So, so the Farside cartoon was out for a very long time, and Jane actually then used it as part of the Jane Goodall Institute uh, for fundraising. But really, um, what she said to me was, why not turn something which everyone loved into something that, that, that you can actually generate revenue and resource from? And for me, um, I think being in education is, is a job I love, but I also think it's a job where you have a lot of fun. And, um, and I think for me, the journey has been to always kind of instill the team and the organization, not with a sense of irreverence, but with at least a sense of um, not being overly uh, serious in its, in its bearing, but being willing to actually take a chance, be able to take a risk, and able to learn from mistakes, but also be able to, to, to convey the fact that learning is, learning is adventure and, and, and education is adventure. And that to me is, is, is why the case it's a privilege to do. So can you tell us about your own um, education, both as an undergraduate and a uh, postgraduate student? Yeah. Um, so I finished my equivalent of year 12 in Ireland uh, in 1991. And I was 17 years old. Um, and we have the same 
equivalent uh, with the Central uh, Territory Commission Centre in London, the Central, the CAO. And the, it was a big, epic, you know, fill in form for the CAO. It was, it was kind of a rite of passage. I'm first in family to attend uh, higher education. And I remember filling in the form. I'd always wanted to be a scientist. And um, I was pretty bright. But, but it was a kind of a new venture for anybody in my family to attend university. And we had the form, and my, fa my, my father said to me, put down Trinity College, it's a really good university. And my mum said, put down Dublin City University, TCU, because you can come home for your lunch. And TCU went down as the number one uh, choice on my CIL form because literally I could walk to the university and come home for lunch. It was a mechanism. I didn't have to take a bus into the city. Uh, and I said to the student, I was taken on. And similarly, I knew a couple of people who were going to go to, to DCU from my, my, my year group. Um, so it was uh, trying to have that familiar sense. I, I took uh, on a degree of uh, analytical science, my principal undergraduate degree. And about six weeks into it, I realized I made the wrong choice. Um, I found it very uh, limiting in the way in which it was going to enable my career. I wanted to be a scientist, and this was really set me up to be a very narrow, specific analyst. And the university was about to introduce a second year, uh, sorry, a, a new degree program in applied chemistry. It was going to have the same first year as analytical science and as applied technology degree. So I convinced them to allow me and a number of uh, my, my classmates to jump from the, the end of our first year in analytical science into the second year of applied chemistry. And we became the first cohort of applied chemists. Um, small groups, uh, there were only 12 people in my, in my, my year group, so it was a very small, bespoke education. We were guinea pigs in many ways because it was a brand new program. And now I know that programs are geared to that. I think that they, they had a feel for what they were going to do, but they had it all ready as a rollout. Um, and towards the end of that, uh, I was asked by one of the uh, lecturers if I wanted to do a PhD. It was an honors degree program, a graduate program. And I said, I do, I, want to, I don't want to just do a chemistry prevention. Sorry, this is very loud. Yeah. I'm going to go back here. Um, I don't want to just do a broad chemistry degree. I'd like to see where what I make translates into something tangible. And he said, okay, well, I'll supervise you um, to do kind of, if you come up with a decent proposal, well, I'll supervise you. And so I did the PhD in anti malarial drug and we produced molecules and we modeled them up. We've got them. I synthesized them and we got them tested by the World Health Organization. And some of them worked, some of them didn't work. And many of them didn't work the way we talked about what they worked. Um, but I began to understand how uh, drug discovery really worked uh, using computer aided methods. And so uh, it was the early days of, of, of rational drug discovery. And that took me on a career into the pharmaceutical industry and then postdocs. And eventually found myself in, in, a, in a position as a lecturer in, in Trinity College. So, how did you find yourself into into senior leadership roles? Um, I'm an accidental vice chancellor, I think. Um, so, I I had gone into the pharmaceutical industry after I postdoc, and I went to Cambridge. And I worked in industry in Cambridge, in the UK, um, and really it was because there weren't many people working in the field that I worked in, and I also learned more about it. It was a very applied industrial area. So, when I came back, uh, I was offered a role in, in, in Trinity. Um, it was the Hitachi lectureship in advanced computing. That was a that was a formal research position, which meant I had a lab, had a, a, an income stream, and I, I didn't have to teach. So it was a really it was a research focused position. Um, and 
because I've come back from industry, um, in the Irish uh, economy has got, well, I'd say two major pillars biotechnology and information computing technology, bio and ICT. And the bio side of the house, there was a push to develop uh, biopharmaceuticals. So uh, a lot of uh, big pharma companies have very large plastic. The Irish government wanted to invest in training facilities, education training facilities, but for that specific uh, niche area of biopharmaceuticals. Somebody stuck their head around the door in my office and said, You go to the pharmaceutical industry, you can go on to this meeting about biopharmaceuticals. I did. I was um, a lecturer, uh, level B. Um, I think I was 31 at the stage. And I went to this meeting where everybody else in the room was a deputy vice chancellor of research, except me. And I was the only one who actually worked in the industry. And, and they were having a conversation about how best to structure this new enterprise. And I just didn't think it was, um, I didn't think it was particularly contempt. Talking to somebody who sat beside me about my views on it, and then we collectively brought a competing bid for the uh, for the, the, the creation of the institute, and we won. So um, I fell into senior leadership because the president of the university called me after we won this major grant. Uh, he said, "You've got a bit of a knack for this industry engagement thing. Uh, perhaps you can take on that role." So I became Trinity College's first associate dean of research and enterprise um, at the age of thirty-one, and uh, he said to me, "You're going to have to make a choice between." Your uh, academic career and kind of uh, both. I, I tried to do both for the next ten years. I tried to, to, to keep the, the lab and uh, the management working. Yes, it's very difficult when you've got a foreign rate of a million dollars a year. About a group of about seventy people trying to write grants and the the TBCR as I became uh, over that time. So when I came down to to UDSA, I think I won my lab last time. So, given um, your description of yourself as an ac accidental um, vice chancellor, you are actually um, unique in in having that business experience. So, has that that business experience shaped some of the ways that you think about universities and how you think about the role of a, a vice chancellor? To some extent, it has. I mean, as a researcher. Biggest research collaborations with both IBM and so the end of the US is IBM Research and Apple. And I would go to California every year for three or four weeks and work with a group on algorithms which we were using for drug discovery. And what I noticed was when you were in IBM, you were in IBM, you weren't you weren't somebody who worked in the department of you know molecular mechanics in the in the, in the group of quantum biology sort of thing. You were actually in the the, the blue was between you and the outside world, you were actually immersed in, 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 the, in the corporate identity of the company. And I like that, that everyone's actually sort of working towards this, a small part of the larger goal. And so um, I noticed that as an academic leader, oftentimes um, it's a company price as well, my previous institution as, as a collection of sole traders were all around. And they, there wasn't that unified Identity. It was an identity, an identity with the organization, but not an identity for the organization. So um, when I took on the role here, I felt it was because it was a new university, I felt it was more malleable uh, than, than some of the older institutions, which tend to actually be over, over, over time. And I also felt that if I could create a sense of identity where people were working for a purpose, and that purpose was they could see themselves in success of the organization, I would get more out of it. So, so UniSA then for me became one where I tried to break down the notion of the 
not only with disciplines, but the units, the departments. And now we have seven academic units. Um, we don't have schools, we don't have departments, we don't have divisions, we've got seven academic units. And every single one is called UDSA, UDSA Creative, UDSA Business. So they work for the university, not just in it. And, and I think that's something we got from the time in the industry that I've been with the, with the organization. And that, and it still is, was a very radical reimagining. Um, and, and in many respects, for, for many people, they didn't quite understand what you were trying to get at, whereas the outcome was actually visionary. But the, the, the journey there has, 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 has been challenging for some people. Uh, um, yeah. What have you learned from this process? One of, the, one of the deficits in any national system is the treatment of the tertiary education and higher education sector as a homogenous unit. It's not. It is diverse, and institutions have their own characteristics, goals, they have differences in their acts, they have different flavors of focus, and yet they are treated homogeneously from a funding mechanism perspective, and also from a perception perspective. There's a perception that everybody who leaves school at year 12 goes, like, who's got this head on the university track? But as I argue that over half of my students are not school leaders, and that I, I know that like 8,000 students, two thirds of them, are outside of South Australia who are in our online office. And I have more first family and low SES than some of my near neighbours. And I also have a very unabashed industry applied agenda in terms of the contemporary nature of the curriculum and the connection to our industry partners, which are, which defines the ethos of the organization. So in that regard, when a one size fits all policy brand doesn't support my institution to be differentiated, whereas the hope would be that it would be. Now, when I said about setting, saying what kind of institution UniSA was going to be, I realized that some people will want to go on that journey, some people won't. But I also figured that I want people to identify with that type of journey and choose to take their, their talents to the organization. We introduced attributes, they were all involved in the forum. Mm -hmm. um, we introduced a whole series of attributes which we, we select staff for, we, we screen or type. Now, I don't want to have just kind of group think and everybody's at home on each other. So like we have all of the regular for some that have kind of different perspectives on the table. But those attributes define the types of people we want. And you have to marry, you actually have to succeed in in demonstrating those attributes to be promoted in the organization. It's not going to just have you know 10 major papers and a lot of grants. You also have to actually be corporately fit to the, to the institution. And that's a different thing for us. And my view was you don't like it. You can work in 39 other institutions that have a different that have different interests. In in a context like Adelaide, where you've got three different universities that were established at, at three different moments in, in the higher education uh, endeavor in Australia, UniSA is actually stands out as being quite different. Was that also what drove you um, in terms of your shaping UniSA as it is? Yeah, to a certain extent, I think the most, I guess, personal reason was identifying with the institution as being very much like the institution I attended. So when I went to DCU, it was a brand new university. It had only been a university for three years, and it was the university you went to to get a job. And when I looked at the, the demographic of the UniSI students, the, the alignment among the professions, the fact that it was about enabling participation, enabling 
I had a very strong personal uh, resonance with that. I, I I feel that it was that sense of identity. I mean, I, I did. I said to my said to my previous school principal, who was the secretary of Dublin City University at the time, I feel like I've actually just come to, to the back of the campus. It was that 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 kind of tangible connection. Um. So that's that, that's something for me, which, which which I guess drove my engagement, not maintaining that sense of openness, which Denise Bradley really put in place when she was in Vice Chancellor here about equity. But equity and access is written into the university's um, uh, foundation act, commitment mm-hmm. to Aboriginal education, and the university's act of support institution have reconciliation statements. UDSA has pedigree and a history of doing these things, and they resonated and I identified with them. So out of mind then became the logical thing to do, not to be, I said at the time, it was a great schizophrenia. When I joined the uni, it was 25 years old. No, we were pretty far. We were only 21 years old. 21 years old when I joined. And um, there was a almost Pinocchio-like feeling. I wanted to be a real university. So we needed to have all the things that a real university had. Or as I was saying, you know, actually youth here is an advantage. It's, a, it's an opportunity to lay down our own trajectory and not any later. To take on and own that space. So for now, in the last 10 years, we've been the most industry engaged university in Australia. So to really step into that space in a big way. We've got we're second in Australia for graduate employment, like the University of South Australia, but that's phenomenal to, to, to really say that these are the things we value. And it's about making sure that our educational outputs are great and our research is is is, is connected to our, our partners. So it was it was it was easy for me in that regard because I felt like, as I said, I felt like I'd actually come back to my own institution. So I'm hearing the words equity, participation and inclusion. Are these important things that drive you as, as a leader and as, as, as an educator? And what else drives you in, in, in your role? Yeah, um, I, I really do feel, I mean, that I attend university is, you know, um, to be forced to family is, is an unusual set because it was something that was an expectation uh, that maybe that it would not happen in, in, because there was no the normal role model for it in the family. So, so going to university and then find yourself as a vice chancellor kind of an unusual, you know, career path. Up. We sat down at the age of ten and said, "You want to run the university system?" Um, the, the 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 way in which I could see uh, how equity and participation and um, participation is not good. Success and outcomes are more important than participation because they're not the same thing. So. I've, I've certainly I've recalibrated the lens towards outcomes and success rather than just participation on others. But when you when you do graduate people who've never felt they be they will be able to report that they have no uh, they have no role model and they become the role model and they encourage others. We now have got second and third generation USA students starting to come through them, it's to technology students who come through before. And you can see now this, this, that it's, it's becoming expected that they will, and they go on to greater success. And we know we have the financial impact that the university of education has. The, 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 um, for me, though, it's about making sure that it's about excellence as well. So, you know, equity shouldn't be about lowering your standards. It should be about ensuring that anybody with the capacity to be a successful learner is, is afforded the, the access to be able to do that. And it doesn't matter whether you're from a fee-paying school or from a public school, if you've got the capacity, there should be a pathway for you. So when we we have a union psychology, which actually supplies degrees, you know, participate articulation pathways internally for those who have got year 12. But I'm increasingly of a mind to try and move away from ATARs to, to, to look at other mechanisms to identify what we 
potential for students and, and, and to allow them, you know, the, the, the headspace that they need to be to flourish through education. And similarly, the research that you do needs to be, I would say, not only contemporary, but, 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 but uh, partnered research and that partnered excellence is really important. So on both sides of the equation, you do deal with an accessible institution. So like if I deal with a grammar company or an IT company, they'll find it's easy to do business with, but they'll do business at a level which is like a, a very high bar in terms of the quality of the evidence. In, in focusing on the um, inclusiveness and uh, pathways and participation, it does require that uh, universities are organised in ways that are student-centred and support students. How, how, how best can we ensure that students are successful? Because we can get them in, but then we have to graduate them and we have to ensure that they can get jobs. So, so what's happening at UniSA to, to do that? Yeah, I guess uh, I wouldn't say it's, it's not our responsibility to get them or to they get jobs. I think... There's, there's a responsibility to ensure that you don't over enroll, so that you, you're not producing lots of graduates who, who, who are going into areas where there's no opportunity for them. And in terms of graduating, it's about ensuring that you're, you're, you're enabling them to be successful to, within, the, within the limits of, 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 of capability and qualification. So when I look at, at the way we approach this, we spend a lot of time looking at uh, first year attritionment uh, courses programs. We do interventions based on their we, we will put students back into courses and supports if they need them. And then we'll, actually, we'll, we'll use excellent awards as well if students are not geared to, to, to have a full degree of qualification. We'll, we'll try and make sure that the investment they made in seeking their education to that point is not actually based on that point. Um, but we do tend, we keep a weather eye on uh, skills requirements, but also employment trends. So we, we started with law school here at 11 years ago, started 11 and a half before I, started, before I became important. And the university took a lot of flag for starting Bloomberg Law School in a, in, in a market which already had two uh, near neighbours. But within seven years, ours was already the top ranked law school of the three times higher. And it was producing graduates who went on for one because the numbers were small. They were, they were, they were practically oriented, they could walk out the door and write a brief. So they had a skill set which was pro employment, pro qualification, and which is, speaks to the way in which we gear our curriculum. Um, so having a, and I keep using this word contemporary, having a contemporary curriculum, which is, which is industry-informed or industry-informed, will make your graduates loyal. Then not, you know, overproducing, doing it for the good of the graduates, but also for the, the economics of the institutions, and this is the second most important place, it's reasonably. You need to make sure you've got good, a good offering and then a good cohort. In South Australia, you've got a relatively new government, and federally we've got a new government. Both of the same colour. Yeah. What's what's your sense of what that will mean with two Labour governments, state and federal? What will that mean for higher education, both nationally but also um, locally? Well, I won my uh, I think it's my eleventh minister for education, federal education. Um, so I'd like to see some stickiness in the role. I'd like to see some longevity in the role. Um, I think Labour at a federal level have been. Very, very clear that they intend to uh, look root and branch at, at all elements of higher education. And that goes back to review the JRG, but also back to the economic of how they intend to see and maybe get to that point of stimulating and supporting differentiation in the sector over time. So um, I know the Minister made reference to the Bradley Review as having a business. 
So I can see that there will be policy levers which will align to both participation but more over success. And I, I hope uh, in some way the support of, let's say, differentiated mission based growth institutions in Australia. Primary concern is the majority of those supports are federal supports from public funding and the so you mentioned a bit earlier also that um, the need for d more diversity in higher education, but you also said that, you know, so many universities have um, law schools, business schools, engineering, um, and more and more are getting medical schools. So how do you, how do you get that sort of diversity um, where, in fact, the structures are pretty similar, the, the acts have sort of local variation, and the strategies are pretty similar. There's a few different layers to that. I mean, in terms of strategies, there's a, there's a great homogeneity of university strategies, which basically is a student's quality excellence. And when we did our strategy, the first one on my team, we, we crowdsourced what we wanted to do from within the organisation. That led to a very I don't know, um, individualistic strategies. Some universities that were going to do the following things and there were actions. There weren't kind of great statements of motherhood and how to apply. They were, they were definitive actions that were taken to, to move the dial from point A to point B. So it's part of kind of corporate style strategy. And that in sorting, crowdsourcing becomes more popular in the way in which strategies are being derived. The ads, well, I mean, the ads are already written. So unless the ads are amended, you're not going to get active diversification into the system. So ours has, um, Equity and access to discussion because somebody had the foresight in 1990 to do that. Um, the factors around diversity will come at the important, and I think it will come at the funding model that as well. It could come at the funding I would, I mean, it, it was the coalition wandered into the space, and um, it didn't really translate into a massive change in operation, but it, it goes back to performance based funding or, or performance based innovation of, of the, the sector. Wherein, if you've got Let's say we pick on medical schools, you've got 24 medical schools. Well, let's look at the, the quality of graduates that are produced through a lens of employability, through a lens of regionality, where they go, who are who's sticking is retained, and be able to, in some way, incentivize or reward the better performing groups within there to actually have more students so that the, the less viable pieces are not just also ran, if you want. And I do believe that if the funding model is to be open, in some way, making to an equitable uh, arrangement where everybody gets supported to the same quantum to attend, no matter what program they're going to do. The idea that there's a market driver in student choice around fees is nonsense. Um, but however, if a student's going to incur a debt beyond that, well, that debt should be linked to, to, to the quality and the outcomes of the degree program. And I think if we can derive some uh, metric there, we've got different percentiles of evaluation which links to employability and satisfaction. Then you'll see differentiation as institutions will focus on what they're good at and drive a national market that way. So, if you could change anything for students uh, that would help them to be successful, yeah. what would you do? Or what are you doing? Well, I can tell you the one thing I'm looking at. The try and remove the extent of our Aboriginal students would be top of the list. That's the last barrier to success and participation in life. So we have a lot of supports in place for pathways, for scholarships, but if they don't eliminate the accrual of debt, 
over time, and the impact of debt on that cohort of students cannot be overestimated. Obviously, it is really a significant consideration which deters participation. So if we get rid of that, see what it does to participation. I have a theory that we will move uh, dial and so we see a graduation students in the ways that we haven't seen for years. I know that in, in well, in 20, in 31 years of pharmacy in South Australia, through the University of South Australia, we've had one or two Aboriginal graduates in pharmacy. And if you think about the uh, every single pharmacy chain, the national chains, all that perhaps who are employing graduate pharmacists, we're never going to satisfy that. So linking the employment requirements and for, 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 for allowed participation in the, in the marketplace employment back to the international service makes sense today. So it's a social experiment, let's see what difference it makes. So that, that, that is one. Um, the other one would be to normalize the, the, the support that they get from the I think it should be everyone should get the same amount, but they should be able to spend it if they want. If you want to do a single course of problems, you want to do a degree, you can you have a certain amount of credit and accesses. That allows you to access that education up to a limit on your standard education. But, but why would the government preference um, a dentist over an engineer or an art student? Indeed, indeed. So, once again, in terms of the reimagining, where where are you in in your journey of reimagining higher education? Um, what I'm trying to achieve is effective. Effective blended learning. So you've got like many, many months ago, like the community in Japan, 2020, where I students how to work. They wanted online face to face, small groups, big lectures. They wanted it was a pie chart, it was, it was an equal distribution without six chunks. And it was, it was no one way, which meant that they, it's horses for courses. It depends on whether you are a youth student who is interested in being like, you know, an off campus lifestyle, or whether you're a, a mother of three students. Who's one of three kids who's, who's in a pod who wants to, to improve their life through that, through the transition of three, and has to be online. People want different ways and different modalities, and there is no one size fits all. So, what I'm trying to do right now in terms of imagination is porosity between the online face to face and timetable and modalities to make it seamless to move between them. And I think if I could do that, that would satisfy student choice. So that's, that's a non trivial exercise because timetables get baked in. And they're very hard to make. But that, that's the next note I would like to crack because I think that affords people the ability to access education in a way that suits them, not the way that the education institution determines choosing. So, to achieve that, you'll also have to educate the people that work in the university. Sure. And you'll have to re socialize them to different ways of thinking, different ways of understanding the world, but also. Um, being able to see themselves in this reimagining. Have you got any ideas about how you can do that? That's all about dialogue and communication. It's about, it's actually about a re, as I say, it's about a re education. It's about repeating the message many times, demonstrating that there's an evidence based for why you're doing what you're trying to do. And, and it starts with, in the, with the articulation that more than half of our students are non school leaders. So they, they don't operate on a, on a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, nine to five times a day. They operate on a 24 7 basis, they want to access education because it's a very lifestyle. And the more in which we can demonstrate and actually hold up the personas of our learners, the greater affiliation and identification is between the educator and the student. So they can realize that as they're delivering what they're delivering, it's still a bit of benefit to the student. And I think it becomes one of 
asynchronous core contingency and synchronous um, intensities. Those intensities can either be in the classroom or indeed in the panel online. Once we can crack timetable, that's that's, that's where the law Well, it's timetable and workload. Yeah, yeah, well, workload is, 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 is a final bit. So, I mean, it's, it, 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 ideally, you'd be able to actually have more people in one room at different hours because fractionality is, is key pieces. So, flexibility on the work side is important. So, look, here's my uh, last question. In fact, it's two questions in one. Um, what advice would you give to your younger self? And then, what would you say to an inspiring, to a senior leader who has uh, aspirations of becoming even more senior? Um, if I was going to give myself some advice, I would have taught myself to ditch the time earlier in my career um, because it's, it's just not really me. I want to be authentic. I, I don't think I'm aggressive for as long as I did. Um, I think for, for, uh, for an emerging leader, I think it's about, um, first of all, uh, never curb your enthusiasm because oftentimes enthusiasm gets curbed because you feel you want to be deferential or, uh, I guess, overtly respectful for an alternative point of view because of a perception of seniority or experience that may not be there. So enthusiasm is fine um, as long as you, you, you know, that self-belief is really important. So I think being, not being afraid to articulate your perspective because of and maintaining your integrity articulate that's incredibly important. Uh, that would be the advice to the version. And don't worry. And the final thing that you should probably add there is don't lose your sense of humour. No, no, because it's incredibly important. Going, going back to the very beginning of uh, the Jane Goodall um, cartoon. David, look, thank you for spending time with me this afternoon. Um, I, I have worked, done work with you and for you at UniSA, and so I hold it in the highest regard. And uh, everything you've said to me, um, it, it's the David that I know and admire. So thank you very much. And uh, enjoy your afternoon. Visit studiosity.com slash students first for the next Students First Symposium, an open forum for faculty, staff and academics to candidly discuss and progress the issues that matter most in higher education. Studiosity.com slash students first.